in our lecture series, uh, which is connected with our current exhibition in Alvark or Erin, Gaelic Families and Their Manuscripts. Um, we're, we're delighted to see such a capacity audience here today, and I hope you all have received a handout which the speaker has kindly provided um, for you all. If you haven't, um, could I just beg your indulgence and ask you to share with your neighbour um, and anybody who would like a handout after the meeting, um, we, if they give me their email, we can email um, a handout to them. Is that okay? So thanks very much for your, um, for your indulgence and um, for coming in here today. Um, we have um, a, a very erudite speaker for you today, um, Professor Liam Brannock, former professor in Trinity College and now director of the DIAS School of Celtic Studies. And Professor Brannock is an expert on um, the laws of medieval Ireland, uh, following in the distinguished foot footsteps of uh, Daniel Vinci, who did such great work on the Brehan laws. Um, uh, Dr. Brannock is also the co-editor of the Academy's journal, uh, the Journal of the Old School of uh, Irish Learning, ARIU, uh, which is a very um, important journal internationally for Irish studies and for the Irish language. Uh, he was also one of our keynote speakers last year at the Lauren Hitzer Conference in the Academy, uh, which was podcast. And I'd just like to remind you that this lecture is being recorded and will, the podcast will be uh, posted on our website in due course. So you can, uh, you can hear it again and uh, recommend it to your friends. But without more ado, um, I just introduce our speaker, um, Ian Brennock, who's going to talk to us about the Brehan Laws and Medieval Irish Society and he will refer to some of the manuscripts which are on display on your left, which are legal manuscripts from medieval Ireland. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Siobhan, for those kind words. Um, now, uh, I'll get going with, uh, we have a rich corpus of legal texts from medieval Ireland forming a continuum extending from the old Irish period, and I've given those item number one in your handout for reference purposes, uh, 600 to 900 AD through the Middle Irish period, uh, 900 to 1200 to the early modern Irish period, uh, circa 1200 to 1650. And these texts have something, something to say on almost every imaginable topic relating to the law. Uh, the greatest part of this corpus is in Irish, and the standard edition is on the handout there, uh, D.A. Binchy's Corpus Eurus Hibernicae, uh, Body of Irish Law, uh, which consists of the Irish text alone. So this gives you uh, an idea of the extent of the corpus, uh, 2000, almost 2,400 pages in six volumes in large format pages. In addition, there are a number of texts, mostly of canon law, written in Latin, the international language of Western Europe at the time in the early Middle Ages. Uh, the most important of these is the Collectio Canonum Hibernensis, which is the edition there is on your handout, which means the Irish collection of canons, as, uh, which is what the German says there as well. Uh, a text which was composed in the 8th century and began to be widely circulated in Western Europe as a whole from, from not very long after that, after its date of composition. 
Naturally, I will not have enough time at my disposal uh, today to cover all of these periods and will concentrate on the vernacular texts belonging to the Old Irish period, uh, that is, up to the 9th century, uh, end of the 9th century. Uh, but as an example of the kind of work that can be done for the later period, I refer you to the article by Fergus Kelly mentioned on the handout there, uh, Gillanay MacAgon, a 13th century legal innovator, uh, to underline the point that not everything in the later period is simply regurgitation of what was um, uh, of earlier material. Uh, this is uh, quite an innovative work that he uh, discusses there. Now, um, firstly, I would like to say, uh, or begin with, a few words about our primary sources, namely the manuscripts in which our texts have been preserved, uh, of course, or are preserved in manuscripts, and uh, two of which are on display today over here. Um, uh, the, now, the earliest surviving manuscript in which vernacular law texts are preserved is uh, the poetically named Rawlinson B502, uh, now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, uh, which can be dated to very closely to around 1130 AD. Uh, this is from the, you date this from the people mentioned in, it's got a large collection of genealogies, and you can date it from the, you know, the last people mentioned in each uh, pedigree, uh, so very closely to 1130 AD. Uh, we have other manuscripts from the 14th century, but most of the surviving manuscripts belong to the 15th and 16th century. Those manuscripts on display over there in the, uh, in the press are uh, 15th and 16th century manuscripts. Uh, they were written in the law schools of the hereditary legal families of later medieval Ireland. And I give them the handout uh, on the first page there, that's what the map is. A, a distribution map, uh, taken. this is taken from Fergus Kelly's uh, Guide to Early Irish Law. And you see there the various um, um, uh, uh, legal families. He gives the, the, the Irish form of the name and the anglicized form. Uh, one of the most uh, widespread uh, groups were the, the MacEagans, or uh, MacEagan, uh, MacEagan, um, um, or anglicized also as Egan, then uh, MacLanacha, uh, the MacLancy's Odoran, in uh, the most easternmost uh, ones, the Odorans, with their employers being MacMurray Kavanagh. So you have there, anyway, the, the, the hereditary legal families, uh, which is not an entirely alien concept even to uh, present-day society, um, and, uh, and their employers, which is uh, the, the important thing. Okay, to these, anyway, we owe the, uh, uh, the, the, the preservation of the, uh, of the, the law texts. And uh, they now survive in various libraries, uh, including the Royal Irish Academy, uh, Trinity College Dublin, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and the British Library in London. Uh, there are some others. Right? Um, uh, one important link between the medieval law schools and the modern libraries is the Welsh antiquarian uh, Edward Llwyd, uh, who did a tour of Ireland and collected manuscripts in the very end of the 17th century. Um, and he's been much stu was, was uh, um, studied, his, wor his work and his life was studied by the, the late uh, former keeper of manuscripts in Trinity College, uh, uh, William O'Sullivan. And as he observes uh, in one of his works on fluid, his collection uh, provides about two-thirds of the contents of the corpus, that is Binge's corpus, Euros Severnicki. The fortunate accident of his Irish tour in 1699 to 1700, when he acquired the manuscripts, was the critical 17th century rung in the frail ladder by which they have descended to us. Um, and in another work, he noted that uh, Hewitt's uh, uh, splendid collection of Irish manuscripts was, were bought in 1716 by Sir Thomas Saunders Seabright, the fourth baronet. He was succeeded by his son, also Thomas Saunders, who was in turn succeeded by his brother John, the sixth baronet. 
Sir John lived at Beechwood in Hertfordshire and was a friend of Edmund Burke. Uh, Burke noticed the Irish manuscripts in his friend's library and persuaded him to present them to Trinity College Dublin uh, and they reached the college library on the 31st of October 1786 and this is to the, it's due to the efforts of Edmund Burke or indirectly to the efforts of Edmund Burke that one of the most important uh, collections of uh, medieval Irish uh, legal manuscripts is now in, um, in the library of Trinity College Dublin. Um, I won't have time to go into, of course, you, you, uh, you can, uh, we have many manuscripts which have survived, uh, a very large corpus has survived, an awful lot has been lost as well, and there are various ways that you can work out that quite a substantial body of material has been lost. Now, uh, so we have then, then uh, I said, began with, we have a, um, uh, a corpus of uh, uh, law, law texts, you know, dating from the, the, the old Irish period, uh, but yet uh, the manuscripts are all much later than 600 to 900. So how, what, how do we uh, uh, square that circle? Now, the manuscripts are usually much later than the date of composition, uh, the, uh, the dates of composition which are ascribed to the text by modern scholars. And there are various criteria by which these dates are arrived at. Uh, these include historical events or personages mentioned in a text, um, um, uh, uh, relative dating, if a particular text is referred to or cited from in another text, then the other text must post-date the text it's citing from or referring to. And then there are linguistic criteria. Uh, and this is often the only criterion we have and is based on the observable fact that all languages change over time, that languages are stratified uh, uh, temporarily. Uh, and I give, to begin with the familiar, I give in the handout, it's item number two in the handout, uh, an illustration of language change from something that is familiar. Uh, this is a part of the, um, the parable of the prodigal son, um, start going backwards in, uh, in English 1961, in the Jerusalem Bible. Uh, right, you can all read that and understand it, obviously. Right? Uh, uh, 1611, and uh, you have the authorized version. Right? Uh, uh, in this one, um, uh, the second contains quite a few forms which would not be used by contemporary speakers of English, although uh, contemporary speakers of English would have little trouble in recognizing them. Right? Um, uh, there are also spellings, uh, different spelling conventions. Right? Uh, drew nigh to the house. Right? Nobody would say that now, uh, but you understand what it means, right? so it's a passive knowledge of it. Now, uh, when we move to the uh, third version, we first encounter serious difficulties. This is Middle English in the late 14th century. Right? So you have, you have modern English, 61, early modern English, um, uh, Middle English then. Uh, for Soth, his elder son was in the field, and when he came and nigh to his own, he heard a symphony in a crowd, and he clepped one of the Cervantes, etc. Now, uh, you'd have difficulties with that, and you might even have difficulty, you might even, if you saw that in isolation, wonder, what is this? Right? You know, from, of course, from the context in which it's presented to you here, that it is an earlier version of the uh, part of the prodigal, the prodigal son. The last 10th century, uh, the Old English. Um, uh, by the time we get back to the Old English, or Anglo-Saxon version of the 10th century, we are almost completely at sea. Right? Uh, Old English, uh, and as you can see there, even though you know that this is saying the same thing that all the other versions are saying, uh, it is very, you have difficulties there even working out uh, which words mean what in uh, you know, how you translate that into modern English. You know, the fourth word there, sunu, right? You can guess that that must mean son, right? But you only can guess that because you know, 
you have the modern English translation side. But even with a side-by-side -side modern English translation, there are difficulties in relating and following the, the old English text. So um, uh, old English is so different from modern English that, in fact, it has to be learned as a foreign language, uh, even by native speakers of English. Similarly, uh, the old Irish language of the 7th to 9th centuries is foreign to the modern form of the language. And between these points, the language is stratified temporarily thus allowing us, by examining the language of a particular text, to arrive at an approximate date for it. So linguistic criteria are extremely important in, um, uh, in dating texts. Now, uh, these linguistic strata uh, can be present in the same manuscript, in the same copy. What you have there is a, a, a page from the Book of Ballymote, which is in the library here. Uh, and this is a text on status, which I'll come to later, uh, and it's dealing with craftsmen and uh, professionals, this, this page here. And what you have in the large letters are uh, the original text from the old Irish period, and then in the smaller lettering you have uh, commentary. So these texts were studied in later schools of laws. So what you get in the manuscripts are very often copies of older texts with additions of commentaries um, uh, produced by uh, legal scholars of the later medieval period. So you have various strata of la uh, language, e even in a single manuscript. And the, the language of the text that's written in the small lettering uh, is much later than the language of the text written in the large letters. Um, yeah, very often, conveniently, the scribes will, will help us distinguish the, um, the original text from the later text by using different script sizes, but they don't always do that. Okay, so uh, now amongst the most important tasks for scholars of early Irish law are on the one hand providing editions, translations and interpretations of the individual tracts and on the other developing and refining our understanding of the nature of medieval Irish law. These tasks go hand in hand and the skills required include knowledge of old, middle and early modern Irish, of Latin and of history, both general and legal. Naturally, not everyone will possess all of these to the same degree. Rather, Individuals with differing emphases can and indeed have worked together to advance uh, our understanding. Um, I cite on the handout there item number three, the, uh, the Ancient Laws of Ireland, a reference to the six volumes uh, published uh, over, almost 40, over almost 40 years in the late 19th century. Um, uh, this is the first attempt at a comprehensive edition of these uh, uh, texts. Uh, this had many defects, uh, which I do not have time to go into here. But for accounts of the history of scholarship in the field, I refer you to the next two items on the handout under uh, three. So you can follow it up there. There can be no doubt, however, that um, uh, the most significant development in the field was the publication of D.A. Binch's Corpus Iuris of Ernike in 1978. Uh, the proof of this lies in the evidence uh, flourishing of the study of early Irish law, which it has led to. And by way of example, I cite I list on the handout two of the most important works uh, which followed from its publication, and these are uh, on uh, item number four there, uh, Fergus Kelly's Guide to Early Irish Law, um, which is the first you know, comprehensive and authoritative um, uh, uh, account of the main distinctive features of this uh, uh, legal system, and then uh, his Early Irish Farming, uh, which uh, is a, a wonderful, um, if you read the full title, of course, it's a study based mainly on the law texts of the 7th and 8th centuries. So I'll try uh, later on in this talk to explain how law texts can tell you about farming, how law texts can tell you about society and other aspects, um, more than simply, you know, the penalty for this, that and the other. Um, uh, but it's a, you know, a, and 
know, this has got about 600 pages, and it's a very substantial uh, work, and it shows the, 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 the value of these sources in, in ways other than uh, simply uh, for legal history. Now, while uh, the editing of individual texts is of great importance, the publication of, uh, of the Corpus Iuris Vernicke has also allowed us an opportunity to develop a better overview and to set the text in a wider context. Uh, the list uh, of contents which I set out in my companion, which is a companion to the Corpus Iuris Vernicke mentioned there in the handout, um, item five, um, uh, amounts to roughly 900 items. And this is one way in which we can get an idea of the variety and extent of legal writing in medieval Irish. Another way is to take what is probably the most extensive uh, old Irish law text, Seanach uh, which you wouldn't know from the title of that, the great tradition uh, that it uh, referred to, uh, uh, that was a law text, but it is, uh, to illustrate this uh, variety. And there's a, a reference there as well to the general discussion that I have of this, of this text. Uh, it's late, uh, uh, late 7th century text. Um, so this, this it consists of component tracks, each dealing with uh, a particular uh, legal topic. Uh, so I've just given the, the, uh, the, the full total there of, uh, of 47 tracks. Um, and, uh, there may be one missing, you know, 40, you know, might, might have origin of a uh, total of uh, 48. Um, uh, if it did total 48, you see you'd have, uh, it's all traditionally divided into three uh, sections, three thirds. The first section contains eight tracks. Second one contains 16, and the third one, if you have 48, would contain 24, right, which is eight, two times eight, and three times eight. Um, uh, but the, this division into uh, threes is uh, two thirds is, is medieval. Now, um, uh, some of the topics dealt with are obvious, of course, that the sort of thing you'd expect in a law tract, uh, but others less so, or at least at first sight. Uh, naturally, we would expect matters such as theft to be dealt with, and this is done in track number 24, uh, uh, judgments concerning uh, uh, thefts. Uh, among the other tracks, we may note uh, a number of tax tracks dealing with relations between neighbours, typically, of course, a major source of legal conflict um, and a major source of legal income. Um, uh, so. Um, uh, item number 10 there, Bretha uh, uh, Judgments of Neighbourhood. Um, uh, 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 covers such issues as fencing and trespass. Right? Um, and uh, the more specialised, Track 22, which deals with the consequences of setting up a mill on one's land, as well as Track number 21 on bees, and, uh, bee judgments. Uh, um, uh, this last one deals in particular with the effects uh, on one's neighbours when a person begins beekeeping. Right? Uh, the idea uh, that one should allow somebody else's bees to harvest nectar on one's own land uh, without uh, paying for it is, of course, anathema um, in a uh, private property system. Uh, but you can see already from these these tracks, which are you know dealing essentially with the lawyers dealing with uh, arguments uh, and potential. Uh, causes of disputes between neighbours, but already you can see from this how then they can indirectly shed light on daily life, on uh, the material culture of 7th and 8th century Ireland. Right? So we will, uh, uh, incidentally then we get a lot of detail about beekeeping, about mills, right? about fencing, uh, the various types of fencing and so on. Um, uh, other uh, um, 
you know, textile uh, relating to animals, okay, we have bees, right? You'd expect others, other animals to be dealt with as well, not just bees, right? And you have uh, uh, two tracks there, 28, sorry, 29 and 30. Um, uh, cats put first here, uh, so uh, uh, judgments on cats and judgments on uh, dogs. And, um, this, these include, you know, if you, um, yeah, compensation for you know, killing somebody's cat, right? And different types of cat, then you get, you know, the, the, the functions of cat, you know, especially a cat of a barn, right, um, uh, which kills mice and rats, or mice, I suppose, but not rats at the time. Uh, of course, would be particularly a valuable cat. So, you got, you know, um, uh, light is shed then on animals and various types of um, uh, dogs, working dogs, and so on. Uh, physical injuries are covered in uh, tracks 32 to 35, uh, which deal with the compensation for injuries as well as the duty of the injure, injurer. Uh, and of course, you don't, if you injure somebody, it isn't always deliberate. It could be accidentally injuring somebody, but you still have to provide sick maintenance in the lack of a central uh, a national uh, uh, health uh, service or a, uh, a health exec uh, service executive. Uh, you have to provide sick maintenance. That is, it's done on an individual basis, private basis. You bear the costs of nursing the injured party back to health. So very detailed. Um, uh, you know, incidentally, then from these tracks you get, and it's always it's incidental. You get some idea of medical practice in uh, uh, early medieval Ireland. Uh, that's just to give you an idea of the variety. Right? Uh, almost everything is, uh, is, uh, is is covered in the law tracks. Uh, now, with regard to the uh, the vernacular texts, uh, an important distinction is that between legislation and legal manuals. The early text, Shannach Asmor, that we've just looked at now, is an example of a legal manual. It's not a, uh, a piece of legislation. Right? It sets out what the law is and is only incidentally concerned with enforcement. Right? Actual examples of uh, uh, legislation, on the other hand, are the so-called kane, is the plural, coin, uh, which of course means tax in modern Irish, but uh, uh, in the old Irish period, quite a different meaning. Um, uh, uh, a law, uh, a piece of legislation. Um, now, uh, and apart from, you know, we have some texts of some of these laws, um, uh, uh, some complete, some uh, only in extracts. Uh, notices, these ones we have notices of their uh, promulgation, formal promulgation, they're noticed in the annals. Um, and very often as well, the people uh, who are involved in the promulgation of the laws are noted as well in the annals, and these include both uh, secular and uh, church authorities. So I give by way of example two of these. So I've given some examples of coin on. There's six there in the handout. Coin Adhavnon, this is the law of Adhavnon, um, um, uh, Abbot of Iona in the late, uh, late 7th, early 8th century. Coin Dari, um, uh, Dari is a, a female saint. They usually have a, uh, uh, an ecclesiastics or a saint's name uh, as the second element in them. And Con Fodrick, the law of Patrick. Uh, and you have there some entries. There are these, the, the promulgation of the law of Patrick uh, is mentioned 11 times at various dates in the annals. I'll just give you, for example, two of them. One of them is a very old reference, uh, Lex in Latin. Lex Patricii uh, Tenotibernium, the law of Patrick, was enforced in Ireland. That's for the year 737. And a, a more detailed one then, Diarmid uh, Dothol some mixture of old Irish and, uh, and Latin. So Dermot went to Connachta uh, with Patrick's law and his insignia. Right. Uh, okay, 
it is uh, it is because these books, the, uh, the vernacular, most of the vernacular texts are uh, law books rather than pieces of legislation that we have in them discursive treatments of the many aspects of the law. And it is these which provide us with valuable insights into both the structure of society and daily, daily life in early medieval Ireland. Thus, for example, we can reach a fairly complete understanding of how contracts were made and who is entitled to make them, the eyewitnesses and sureties uh, necessary for a law, lawful contract, the duties of these persons, the sureties, the guarantors, and so on. Uh, the content of these manuals are quite different from the kind of text which would lay down a tariff of penalties for breach of contract, uh, which might end up, uh, might well end up shedding very little light on the nature of contracts themselves. And uh, I cite there in item number seven, uh, the excellent study by the Australian uh, scholar Neil MacLeod and Professor of Law at Murdoch University in Perth in Western Australia, uh, uh, which consists of the edition of a text, uh, uh, an old Irish text on the law, plus a study of uh, uh, the law of contract mentioned. And so you get a very comprehensive account of the, um, uh, from, from other texts. And one of the manuscript copies of this uh, text on contract law is on display there in the, in the case right, uh, over there. Right. Um, right, uh, it's the one on the, uh, the left-hand side in the case over there. Uh, okay, um, now, um, so yeah, uh, for today's lecture I've chosen uh, just, I've already touched on you know, some of the things that uh, your, your contracts, uh, uh, a great deal to say about uh, the law relating to animals, uh, marriage, the position of the church in society, and so on. I've chosen one important topic where the law text can sh shed a great deal of uh, light, namely the societal structure of uh, early medieval Ireland. Um, now, these are status texts, or, uh, or what we call these particular type of law texts. Uh, status texts form an important subgroup among the law texts. Um, early Irish society was not, well, like modern society, was not uh, egalitarian, but uh, it didn't even have the fiction of uh, equality before the law. Um, uh, and an individual's legal standing, for example, the value of, of, uh, of one's oath, uh, and your oath was valued. Right? Um, uh, not that different from a character witness from different types of persons, or uh, uh, even if they all end up saying the same thing, it's the status of the person who says it that makes the uh, makes the difference. Um, the uh, the amount paid to one in compensation for an offence. And right? so, stealing a cow from an ordinary commoner. I'm sorry, stealing a cow from a king or a lord would be much more expensive business than stealing a cow from an ordinary commoner. Right. So uh, the individual's legal standing then uh, uh, depended on one's position in society. So it's, as this was the case, lawyers had to be informed on, these, uh, on issues relating to status, especially the difficult question of relating persons from different areas of activity. You, know, you could take you know, people like farmers, for example, and uh, you could grade them according to wealth. Right? That's very easy to uh, uh, to grade them according to wealth. But the problems come when you uh, take you know, a strong farmer and a craftsman. You know, how do you relate their status to each other? These these are the real uh, difficulties um, in a status system. Um, and uh, but the lawyers needed to you know, to be uh, uh, and to, this is. To this fact, then, uh, that we owe the existence of the status texts, which are of inestimable value for constructing a picture of early medieval Irish society. 
the structure of society. Status was measured. Right? So one of the, uh, of course, devices, one of the things I had to use, you, you measure status. Right? And up there, item, item number eight on the handout. I've given a reference, first of all, to Owen McNeil's classic um, uh, tr uh, treatment, Ancient Irish Law, the Law of Status of Franchise, uh, a long time ago in 1923, uh, which consists of a, a translation of three of the principal status tra uh, tracks from the, from the old Irish period, uh, with uh, uh, an introduction and commentary. And then just below that, I've put some of the terms. Right? So the, the uh, measurement of status was Loch Nenach, or honor price. Right? Uh, and individuals were assigned an honor price, usually calculated uh, as a certain number of shades or cobbles. Right? So there, the next item there, shade. Shade means uh, an item, a chattel, right? uh, that is uh, an object uh, of value which is movable. Right? Um, so uh, an item of movable property. Cobble means a female slave uh, in the literal sense, but it's also as an abstract unit, uh, a unit of value. Right? Um, and these are the usual, uh, usual measurements. There are some others uh, uh, in, in, uh, in use as well. Ke uh, Fergus Kelly's early Irish farming, pages five, eight, nine to nine, three. You got a full account of the uh, weights and measures in use in the uh, uh, in the uh, early period. Now, uh, so right. So the first thing then you use local honor price is the measure, right? And then the uh, the units of measure and shades and cobbles, right? So then the next thing, right? You're going to get in these texts lists of. Uh, Honor prices of various ranks of person. You know, a uh, bishop has so many cobbles, a priest has so many cobbles, a strong farmer has so many cobbles. Find this uh, uh, doesn't sound like a very exciting um, uh, kind of text, does it? Um, um, and uh, so, yeah, lists of honor prices of uh, various ranks might not at first sight uh, appear very interesting. Uh, they do, however, allow us to form a picture of the relative uh, standing of different classes of person. So, for example, there I've given on the handout just yeah, the sort of statement that you get. You know, that I'm boring on their own. Shecht showed dira aridesa seven shades are the honor uh, price of an aridesa, and uh, then this is another one: list of various uh, craftsmen, uh, govan, right, blacksmiths, and various other ones. Seven shades as his honor price. That's actually uh, another copy of that. This is in a number of manuscripts. Another copy is there on the on the left hand left hand uh, column. That, uh, that manuscript, it's another manuscript copy of this passage. Right. Now, uh, but uh, when you realize that the Aridesa right, uh, is a lord, right? he is the in the classification system, this is the, the lowest grade of lord in, uh, in early Irish society. He's not a commoner, he's above a commoner, he's a lord. Right? So he's of noble status. Right? Okay, he's the lowest grade. Um, but uh, so when we see that uh, um, uh, that it is the same honor price right, that the blacksmith has, he is assigned an honor price equivalent to a nobleman, right? not an honor price equivalent to a commoner. Right? Then these uh, these lists of figures become interesting and useful, and it enables us to uh, uh, see that skilled craftsmen were held in very high regard in this society, um, uh, ranked as they were with noblemen rather than uh, commoners. Now, um, a concern with uh, distinctions of status is evident throughout the law text, uh, and um, the Shanachas Moor also, of which I'm, uh, track number 26, had a tract devoted uh, specifically to this uh, topic. Um, and uh, I cite there from a, um, a uh, from the introduction to the Shanachas Moor, next item on the handout, it is in the Shanachas Moor that the same compensation has been determined for a king and a bishop. Um, 
so this is about relating people from different areas of activity. So king and bishop are put at the same same level. Right? Uh, a pillar of the law of scripture that means a um, a Latin scholar, a, a Latin uh, 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 scripture scholar, um, and a master poet. That is, so you have the uh, uh, the king and the bishop, the lay and the secular ruler, the highest rank of uh, learned ecclesiastic, and then the, the poet, the filia, is of course the, the uh, learned layman, um, uh, and so on. There's a qualified chance extempore who inspiration illuminates, and then a hospitaller who's paid compensation on the basis of possessions amassed in hundreds, who has a cauldron which is never dry together with these pulpit possessions. Right. Now, um, in its choice of uh, king, bishop, Latin scholar, master, poet, and hospitaller, the introduction to the Chanakas more captures the principal qualifications by which status may be gained, namely nobility, uh, rulership, skill, and wealth. Um, um, and the wealth one is, uh, I mean, wealth applies to, to various people, but in the case of the, the hospitaller is a person who actually buys this particular high status. Uh, he's a person who is very rich and who, by uh, exercising uh, uh, hospitality to free hospitality to all comers, buys a particularly high status in society. Right. Um, uh, Okay, and another thing, of course, is brought out that uh, um, important principle that status is something that must be maintained, uh, and um, whatever the criteria by which status is achieved, right, it can be lost through dishonourable behaviour. Uh, also, the Shannon on that passage there, this agrees with the other early law texts in the high status that it accords to the learned classes, both secular and ecclesiastical. Okay, now. Um, the next one then that I, I, I cite here on the handout is uh, um, under ecclesiastics and so on. This is I, just to give you an example of the sort of detail detail that we can gain from the, uh, and I don't have time of course to go into all of this, uh, from the law text the, 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 of the structure of society just by listening. And this is just some uh, of the distinctions made in the status uh, text. Thus, under Ecclesiastes, you have the Grawl, the Egelse, of course, uh, uh, those in orders, right? The Episcopal Sagat, now given the you know, bishop, priest, deacon. Right? Also, then, of course, for the Ecclesiastic, then you have the, the, uh, the Ecclesiastic scholars, right? The Grawl, the Egner, the grades of, of, of um, Latin learning. Uh, the highest one is the Fair Lakin, the man of Latin learning. Then the next one, I've given translations of these terms an expert in canon law, a teacher, historian, disciple, learner. And then Koydach, the lowest one, is he who has 50 psalms, right? somebody who knows 50 psalms. The psalms, of course, were um, uh, an essential element in the curriculum of the, uh, of the, the uh, church in early medieval Ireland. Then on top of that, of course, you distinguish the, um, the uh, officers of a church, the Grother Odegels. So these are the people who um, maintained the temporalities of the church, looked after the, uh, uh, the material side of the church, so the superior, uh, the prior, the cook, Right. Uh, the cook, of course, would be more than simply the uh, person who cooked the food. He'd also be responsible for the management of the, the kitchen as a whole, so the chef, perhaps, uh, the steward, gardener, doorkeeper, and uh, miller. Right. Uh, similarly, then you get um, uh, you know, seven grades of, of poets. Right. Um, uh, now, there can be little doubt that uh, the, um, uh, the seven levels of holy orders provided the ideal model. This is a widely um, um, uh, distributed, and this, this must have been the, the starting point. 
Uh, it was applied fairly successfully to learned ecclesiastics. You can see you have seven of them, uh, to the offices of the church and even to poets. Actually, the poets are you know, almost always divided into seven grades, and the model is the uh, is the church. Um, but when we come to lay society, we find difficulties with this uh, with this model. The most detailed surviving uh, treatment of lay society is in the uh, early 8th century text, Crith uh, Gablach, which is under lay grades there, and I've given the citation. So Crith Gablach there. Um, uh, where, interestingly, the author begins by uh, stating the necessity uh, of correlating the laity with ecclesiastics. And this is the, the open, uh, um, uh, from the beginning of the text, paragraph 2. Uh, where he asks the question, this is uh, the typical uh, structure of the law text, on what basis have the lay grades been divided? On the basis of correspondence with the grades of the church. Uh, for any grade which there is in the church, it is right that there be a corresponding one amongst the laity uh, for the sake of proving by oath or denial on oath or uh, of evidence or of judgment from one to the other. So in other words, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, this is basically saying that the church Seven grades in the church provide the inspiration, and that the uh, that the lawyer must know about issues of status, because uh, otherwise he's not going to be able to decide in uh, cases which involve conflict from, uh, uh, between people of different status or different standing. Creed Goblock is a text which belongs to the early eighth uh, uh, century, and the ways of dating this are first of all linguistic criteria, but it also has a reference to um, to recent events. Um, um, the uh, the uh, the Northumbrian raid on Brecha in uh, 684, and it also has reference to the Khan Adhman. Um, so uh, it has it is linguistic. Uh, this is one of the, uh, uh, a nice example where you can have three the three criteria. Uh, it also has a reference to the Khan Adhman, which is uh, can be dated another criteria to 697. So it has linguistic criteria for dating it, references to historical events, and a reference to another text, so relative dating by, by relation to another text, all point in the same uh, direction, i.e. The, the early 8th century. So this is a description then, a detailed description of uh, early uh, uh, 8th century society. Some people looking at this um, uh, despair in uh, dealing with it by uh, dismissing it. If you dismiss this as artificial and schematic, then you don't have to um, uh, address it. Um, but you know, if you look at this, the opening um, um, paragraph uh, on, on the necessity of relating um, uh, churchmen to laymen, right? um, um, the, uh, he then goes on right, uh, to, um, uh, to propose a system of seven grades for the laity. Right? So uh, as I said, I've done just below that, are given uh, in um, Roman numerals one, two, and three. So he goes on immediately after that. Then set that uh, statement, he says he proposes gives seven lay grades. So he squeezes it into seven. Fair Milvot, the lowest one is a, a minor. That's M I N O R, um, uh, and uh, the highest one is the king. Right. So yeah, he gets them people who are not of full legal status, uh, but are still you know, not on free. Uh, 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 commoners, nobles, and, and king. Right? Then uh, he says, uh, goes on to say, however, uh, he acknowledges that a more minute division is required, uh, and he says there should be 15. Right? Uh, uh, he said you, you need to actually, you know, in fact, you need a bit something a bit more. Uh, but then, in the body of the text, um, uh, he finally then gives up and covers a total of 17 grades in the body of that work. 
So this uh, uh, then is an important corrective to the notion that is sometimes put forward that the status texts are artificially schematic. If Creeth Goblach were so, uh, the author would have had to squeeze the laity into a scheme of seven grades, right, as he, as he you know, tried to do at the beginning. Now, in this, of course, they, uh, this text has more than is a very, very detailed treatment. It confines itself to the laity. It doesn't deal, for example, with churchmen or poets or uh, craftsmen. Uh, but uh, in, by, by in way of compensation for that, it goes into each of these grades that it treats in very, very great detail, uh, describing the typical um, uh, you know, property that they own and so on. You know, if he says that you know, person, whatever, uh, the boada, uh, that he has, uh, you know, 20 sheep or whatever, you know, you take that you know, to mean that this is typically the person who, this is the kind of person who typically have 20 sheep, you know, if he ends up at 19, you know, that's okay. Right. Uh, these are, you know, the typification. So you get a, a very detailed um, uh, um, discussion of the, the land holding, uh, the cattle holding, the uh, size of, even the size of the house, right? uh, and um, in all of these. And uh, the houses described in this, uh, which also interestingly uh, correlate with the date of the text, the houses are uh, circular houses in this uh, in this text because one di only one dimension is given. Right? Um, okay, so uh, and it deals then with commoners and uh, noble grades, and um, one of the, uh, of course, important and it's a very important, and you will get learn a lot about this important distinction from this text and and and. and Corroborated by others, that the important distinction between commoners and nobles is that noblemen uh, um, are you know, come from a noble family. One of the things they have wealth; they come from a noble background. Uh, the cutoff point is three generations, but they also have clans. Uh, that is that they uh, that they have dependents. They make a grant to a uh, to a client, and on the basis of that uh, grant, uh, proportionate to the amount of the grant, the uh, client will make. Uh, return services to the Lord. Uh, the core of this is a food render, uh, but there are other services, labor service, attendance on the Lord, and so on. Now, incidentally, from the various texts uh, uh, that go into detail about the relationship of clientship, and this text does that as well, the food renders, right, they go into detail on what the food renders are. So you get then information on diet and a great deal of information. This is one of the main sources where you're able to build up so much knowledge about the diet in early medieval Ireland um, and write a book such as Early Irish Farming uh, from this incidental uh, information. Okay, so um, uh, uh, I've tried anyway um, uh, uh, to give you some idea of the, uh, uh, I hope I've conveyed some idea of the richness and variety of the early Irish law texts. And um, I think we'll, um, all scholars in the field will uh, will um, uh, will agree with the uh, uh, item there, number three in the handout. Thomas Charles Edwards, uh, the early medieval Gaelic lawyer, he, he began uh, that uh, work with uh, the opening sentence was law was one of the greatest achievements of the Irish in the early Middle, A Middle Ages. Um, the study of these texts is a benefit not only to historians; uh, they provide information on the many aspects of early Irish society and its norms which are so often alluded to are taken as uh, known in narrative literature. So the knowledge of the law is important for, the, and the, for, for more than simply um, uh, historians. An understanding of the law texts can shed light on these societal norms, 
which in turn contributes greatly uh, to a fuller appreciation of narrative literature. Thank you very much. Much, Liam. Uh, it was a wonderful lecture, um, and you succeeded, I think, for many of us in making what is a very complex subject um, actually relatively clear for us. And you've given us plenty of pointers um, and guides to uh, reading matter. Um, I are there some? There may be some questions on the from the floor. Um, I know um, Liam has kindly agreed to take some questions. Um, if I may um, perhaps start off with one for myself, um, I, there are a lot of women in the audience and um, I think they're all nodding here in agreement now, you know what's coming next. Um, you, you didn't particularly mention um, laws in relation to women and um, I suppose they're one of the key things that um, people um, might be interested in pursuing. Um, I wonder would you like to perhaps just make a brief comment on, on how they may have differed from from other from later laws or um, uh, the context for them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we know quite a lot again from um, uh, the uh, law, law, law tracks. The the uh, the that uh, track number seven, con law of the uh, the regulation of couples. That we have a complete copy of that survives. And that's a, a very important source for uh, uh, the status of women in society. There's also a track there, track number 20, uh, Bandira, which is you know, compensation for, uh, for offences against women. Um, but there's a, there was another track again, uh, number 40, another tract on uh, marriage and divorce, which survives only in fragments. But these, just in the Shanafa Small, uh, uh, shed an awful lot of light on the status of women. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the other tracks as well, you know, yeah. incidentally. But these ones, you know, are, are the particularly important ones. And um, I suppose the first uh, uh, thing you can refer to in this is the, the uh, it was a, uh, a colloquium held here in the academy uh, in the late 1920s. Uh, um, and the leading, of course, uh, uh, scholar of early Irish law at the time was Rudolf Tornasen. Um, and so he, he Yep, the core of it was a reading of the, the text, the Con Law of and then uh, this is also attended by Miles Dillon, D.A. Vinci, and various other scholars. And uh, the volume of essays then produced in that, which consists of an edition of the text and then various uh, articles on the legal status of women in uh, in early medieval Ireland, taking into account this this text and then various various other texts. This is the core you know, source of, uh, of you know, the primary source, but it can be added to. Uh, and then, of course, you can get the, the, the references to, uh, in Fergus Kelly's Guide to Early Irish Laws, of course, a uh, well-indexed uh, uh, well book. And I suppose, I suppose in, well, you can say, I suppose, to, uh, to, uh, to a large extent, uh, the status of women depended on, uh, on, uh, on their, uh, their family background and their wealth. Right? Uh, the, great, the, the more of the nobler their background and the wealthier they were, uh, the the greater their status, they weren't artificial to uh, they weren't you know, extreme artificial uh, impediments put in their way. A woman a woman could inherit property. A woman could the I mean like for example the the um, the the text on, on marriage is uh, is very uh, interesting in this uh, that um, 
uh, that distinct, it distinguishes all sorts of unions between uh, man and woman, but the uh, the, the, the formerly uh, uh, formal marriage, uh, what we call marriage, which is uh, uh, acknowledged by both kindreds. Uh, first of all, they it makes three distinctions there: one where both both parties bring in property into the into the marriage, uh, one where the husband brings in all the property, and then one where the uh, the wife brings in all the property, and they talk about uh, first of all they're concerned with the lawyers are concerned with the relation between the two spouses in the course of the marriage, and then in the case of divorce, uh, who uh, who gets the uh, uh, the the property or how it's divided up. Uh, so there is no uh, there's no uh, you know one thing that is not there is the idea that uh, uh, that a woman on marriage. Uh, uh, that her property becomes her husband's. Right? Uh, we know this because when they talk about divorce, they talk about what each person has brought into the marriage they take away. And what the lawyers then are concerned with is the increase in the property. Right? The property will have, will have grown in the meantime, and then that is divided according to who contributed to that. Uh, so that's one way that we know that the woman kept a hold on her, on her own property. Then uh, the other one about uh, the uh, uh, each you know, you have general things about a woman can't make a, a, a contract without the permission of her husband, but then there are lots of exceptions to that. In very many cases, the husband can't make a contract without the permission of his wife either. Um, and uh, the most extreme one, of course, is where the, 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 uh, where the husband brings in all the property, the, the I suppose, the, the, the right of the, the, the wife to limit his contracts, his power of disposal of property are, are, are less, yeah, but they're not uh, entirely negligible, but then also there uh, you have cases where the woman brings in all the property, and then as the text itself goes, uh, states, you know, the the woman goes in the place of the man, and the man goes in the place of the woman, and it has been calculated for societies that uh, of this uh, development that, that you know there would be quite a significant number of cases where you have had a family which had no male heirs, the only heir was a woman, and uh, that there would be you know quite significant number of cases where the, the woman would have. have um, I mean, we'll go on about this for a bit. I mean, Thank yeah. you. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. No, it's given us. Yes, Father. Um, take you first. I the Irish canon laws, or was it the other way around? Um, they, uh, both ways. Uh, the work, the, yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, yeah, the the collector canon he pronounces, for example, there are uh, there are a lot of very close parallels between that and and we're talking here about surviving texts, you know, uh, parallels that are so close that one of them must be the translation of the other. Right? In some cases, you know, you can't uh, you can't decide which is the original, right? but they're saying the same thing in almost the same words. Um, uh, there are other cases where you can actually show that the the Latin is the original. And that the 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 Irish the old old Irish is a translation of uh, of Latin canon law. Um, uh, you also then um, another way in the collectio canonum hibernensis. There are certain um, uh, there are even certain terms that are uh, uh, that are taken over from old Irish. Uh, um, one of them is the, the word areum a double r e u m, uh, which is a penitential commutation, uh, which means that you know instead of a for example, instead of uh, uh, fasting on bread and uh, uh, bread and water for uh, uh, 120 days, you fast on 
a lot less bread and water for 40 days. You know, shorter, shorter penance, but much more intense. Uh, the word for that in Old Irish is a double arre, uh, which means a commutation right, of uh, something for another. And that has been taken in, borrowed into Latin as areum. Another term that you get borrowed is the, uh, a word for a surety or a guarantor is wrath in, uh, in Old Irish, and that's borrowed into, you get it in the Latin. Uh, uh, the, uh, well, this is, of course, the canon law text produced in Latin in Ireland, um, uh, borrowed as rata. So, um, yeah. so it's, uh, there, uh, yes, definitely there is a yeah. great deal of mutual influence. I wonder how, given the, the richness and the, the structure of such well-developed Irish law and what it represents about Irish society, that our Norman and English visitors were able to portray the Irish as barbaric savages. Yeah, but I mean... <laughs> Was that just political spin and justification yeah, for invasions? Well, yeah, I mean, it yeah. just seems extraordinary, the, yeah. the picture that you portray against, you know, what Geraldus Cabrensis wrote about it, so it's... Uh, yeah. I mean, you can do that with anything. I mean, like one one uh, one very interesting thing that comes out, let's say, about diet is uh, uh, is the the what was called it older summer summer food and winter food. Uh, uh, winter food would have been meat, uh, and summer food would have been milk products. And uh, Fergus Kelly, in, in that section on uh, uh, milk products, has a uh, uh, you know a very very detailed account of this. This is you know an incredible variety of. Um, um, uh, 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 dairy products, you know, as, a, as opposed to the description by a, a recent, recently deceased uh, professor, uh, who of linguistics in Harvard, who um, uh, who studied in the Institute for Advanced Studies uh, uh, in the late 50s, and he described Ireland uh, at the time, Dublin's time, where there were two kinds of cheese, white and yellow. Uh, early medieval Ireland had a much greater variety of dairy products, right? cheeses, all sorts of milk products. Now, and Fergus Kelly then has this uh, that that you know uh, detailed you know account of all the variety, but also accounts of how uh, English commentators of the 15th and 16th century regarded this as barbarous. Right? The the variety, it's just you know whatever. Anything can be uh, uh, can be taken to be uh, you know, if it's different, it is barbarous. You know? Um, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Um, just want to ask about honour price, and uh, just wanted to ask something. Uh, the Book of Ballymote was sold by the McDonoughs to for so many cows to the O'Donnells, and it was noted that it was so many times the honour price of McDonough himself. So I, didn't, I just wonder, would, would that be if he was if he was uh, taken hostage? This amount would have to be paid to get him back, or what does it mean exactly? All right, here you have it: the honor price, with regard to different status and so on. Hmm? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, the honor price is—it's—it's it's a measure, right? Used of your. Um, the thing is, you know, if you take um, whatever a, a king, a lord, and a commoner, right? You, there's no great difference. You, you, you know, the king gets more than the. Than the Lord, and the Lord gets more than the commoner, you know, in compensation, whatever. Let's say payments, right? Let, let's come back to that in a minute. Uh, the problem is, you know, if you have a craftsman and a king and a lord and a commoner, so you, you need, first of all, you need to have some sort of uh, measurement, an absolute measurement, right? Uh, there is, of course, a certain arbitrariness in this, it was arrived at, but that, that is what's there a measurement, right? And the measurement is the, uh, the so called honor prize. Now, what that means is that all, all compensations paid to you. Right. Uh, your legal personality is measured by that. 
So uh, if somebody steals from you, right, part of the compensation for that is you have to make restitution what you stole. You steal the cow from somebody, right? you have to uh, uh, give the cow back, or if you, you know, got rid of the cow, you give an equivalent cow back, right? not a diseased cow, etc. Uh, then you pay the compensation for theft, which is standard, right? Which is usually doubling, or can be well, in certain circumstances can be more. So you pay the compensation for the theft. Then you pay, in addition to that, a penalty equivalent to the person's honour price. Right? So it forms an element in compensation, right? um, and it also forms an element in a person's legal uh, capacity. A person whose honour price. If you have two people swearing on behalf of somebody, uh, um, uh, uh, let's, say, let's say you have a court case and you have uh, uh, character witnesses, right? and uh, you have um, one guy with uh, seven seven shades as his honor price, and another guy with two shades as his honor price, and then the other person, on the other hand, is uh, one guy with ten shades as his honor price. The ten shades win out, right? even if it's just one person, etc. So you have the the value of your oath right, uh, will depend on your honor price as well. And so, and it affects you know the, the, everything, every uh, um, your, your legal personality, uh, as all well, everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the penalty for slaying somebody, etc. Yeah. You mentioned divorce. Yeah. How was that defined? And uh, presumably, it was allowed. So, uh, just curious how it was defined, and who adjudicated on the cases? And just on, the, on marriage, was marriage defined? Just the last point, on the map you kindly gave us, there's no legal family as much on the East Coast. What does that, does that mean that the Brehan law didn't apply there? They had, had their well, I mean, we're talking there about the 14th to 16th centuries. So they, you know, the common law applied there at this period. This is post-Norman Ireland. Is, uh, is the, are we talking about common law or Brehan law? No, no, I'm saying on the East Coast. Yes. Uh, this is this is post Norman, right? The map is 14th to 16th century. So the Normans would have uh, occupied. So we had the two systems operating right. side by side. Yes. Yeah. And uh, well, just finally, just to come back to the divorce and the family, if if, if you may. Yeah. Uh, well. Um, okay. Divorce is. Uh, uh, Yep, right. Uh, uh, you have, okay, you have people getting married, whatever you call it. Uh, you have people getting married, you have them separating, and you have them getting married again. Right? Uh, the lawyers uh, do not uh, uh, take, the, these, these texts are simply about dealing with legal consequences of what happens. Right? They're, not, they're not moralistic texts, you know, saying whether or not uh, you know, people should get divorced or not. Right? Um, um, elsewhere, of course, they say that, uh, you know, that you, um, uh, what what God hath put together, let no man uh, take apart. Uh, yeah, that, that's the the the, uh, uh, the you know you get uh, uh, the, the the notion of marriage uh, uh, as being a permanent thing is is there. But these texts are just talking about the the, the practicalities. There's no there's no um, uh, kind of formal saying uh, that formal statement you know uh, for or against divorce. In these texts, and it's just dealing with practicalities. We take one last question, um, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, when you're studying the law, how change manifests itself over time? You know, for any of those periods you mentioned there at the beginning, say the 600 to 900, 
does the wording of the law actually change or is it in the commentaries that you see changes? Presumably there are changes. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, well, yeah, you, you get rewritings and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's in the commentary that you see the uh, changes. Um, a very good example would be the, um, the, uh, the that text there, which uh, Fergus Kelly, the, the, the late 13th century text, because there, you see a uh, this is a conscious effort uh, yeah terminology changes now this writer has introduced a lot of terms from uh, from uh, the English common law so it shows that uh, you had the two systems in in the post Norman period you had certain Areas you know which uh, where Brehan law, other parts where the common law was practiced, and then you know a certain amount of intermixture intermixture between the uh, between uh, both uh, systems. Um, you get a lot of uh, references to um, uh, in English documents again of the the 15th and 16th centuries to uh, Irish term legal terms being used. Fergus Kelly again in his guide to early Irish law is a complete index at the back of these uh, of these terms. But yeah, uh, the the language, the terminology. Uh, and so on do change gradually over time. Uh, uh, most strikingly, of course, is in in this uh, this treatise where you see the the introduction of uh, of uh, uh, what do we call it uh, uh, Anglo uh, English and uh, French uh, legal terms, um, but also more subtly in the uh, in the, the the Irish in the Irish text. Very often the terms will remain the same, but the meaning will change. And, um, Well, with that, I think we'll, we'll draw the session to a close. I'd just like to thank um, Dr. Bernock once more for really giving us such a wonderful lecture that covered so many aspects of the laws of medieval Ireland. And I'd just like to remind you before we thank him in the time-honoured way again that next week's lecture is next Wednesday, next Tuesday, at one o'clock when uh, Dr. Adele Vranach uh, will speak about Janicus, uh, the law, the um, history, the key to history in medieval Ireland, which again is very much rooted in uh, the manuscript uh, tradition uh, which we have and um, is vouched in that. So um, just once more, um, if we could thank Liam for uh, such a wonderful lecture and thank you all for your time.